Welcome to episode number 12 of our podcast series, The Paper Trail from the Netherlands Journal of Geosciences. My name is Henk Kombrink, and in my position as the editor-in-chief, I'm asking authors of papers published in our journal about the highlights of their research, but also the driving forces behind performing the study. Just to make research papers more accessible and giving authors a platform to tell a bit more about what goes on behind the scenes of writing scientific papers. Today, I'm talking to Frank Wesseling from Naturalis. Frank and co-authors recently published a paper in our journal about the reconstruction of Pleistocene climate conditions using marine mollusks. The title of their paper is New Marine Warm Temperature Molluscan Assemblage Demonstrates Warm Conditions During the Middle Pleistocene of the North Sea Basin. Welcome, Frank. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, before we really dive a bit deeper into the paper you published recently, um, could you maybe tell a bit more about your work as a paleontologist? Because you've got uh, quite a long history in that field. Well, that is all, always the case when you're a bit older, uh, like <laughs> me. But uh, ever since a kid, I have been collecting fossils uh, and specialized already early on on fossil shells. Um, uh, the Netherlands, especially on the beaches, we do have lots of fossil shells. Um, and I turned um, into an earth scientist as a student. And from then on, I worked uh, in the Amazon, in Indonesia, in areas like the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea region, and in the North Sea Basin. And I used fossil shells to look in how paleo environments developed, how biodiversity evolved, um, and to understand more and more the drivers of biodiversity change and to understand biodiversity crisis. And about five years ago, my last large program in the Caspian Black Sea ended, and I returned back to the place where I started in the North Sea, and I picked up many projects together with my colleagues from the Geological Survey yeah. uh, to work on the fossil shell founders from the North Sea Basin. That's a great summary. <laughs> and and you work for Naturalis, which is which is a many people will know as a museum. So so how 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 does your time kind of split between doing research and 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 working on exhibitions maybe? Yeah, so Naturalis is indeed our national museum of natural history. Um, my background here uh, is has been a combination of collection and research. And from time to time, you are involved in, in outreach, in developing uh, the exhibitions, uh, in, in all kinds of activities. Um, in the past 10 years, our researchers have kind of been a bit split off of the collections. We do still uh, do work with collections, uh, and the co it is collection-based research that we do mostly. Uh, but we are now also a biodiversity research institute. Right. About 40 permanent researchers and about 100 or so uh, PhDs and postdocs. That's quite a big organization then. Yes, and we were not known as a research institute, but more and more we are known as a research institute uh, uh, and becoming better embedded in the Dutch research landscape. So Naturalis is really also a biodiversity center with a lot of researchers, of which I am one. I see. <laughs> and and how long have you been with Naturalis now? Uh, 27 years. 
so I feel kind of comfortably here uh, at my my place. Yes, <laughs> great. Um, thanks for for a bit of a, a background, uh, Frank. I think that that sets the scene uh, quite well. Um, so so let let's dive a bit deeper into to to the publication that just appeared. Um, like I said, the the title already gives away what the what the the research is about. It's marine um or yeah kind of the, the main thing is that you have found that certain mollusks mollusks you found in a borehole in the northern part of the netherlands indicate quite warm conditions during the middle pleistocene which was a bit of a surprise wasn't it yes this was really kind of a chance find uh, yeah. we hadn't expected uh, one day my colleague flake uh, bushes from the geological survey told me I've got a really nice borehole for you. We are working from Friesland in the north and it goes way into the Pliocene. And I yeah. do work a lot on Pliocene, early Pliocene transition. But uh, in the upper parts of the borehole at around 30 meter depth, there were uh, also some shells, some mollusks. And these mollusks, uh, they contain all kinds of warm species that we know very well from the Emian. And the Emian is the last interglacial. It's about 115,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the Emian is a very, uh, very nice period. It has been described from the Netherlands. Uh, so uh, we have a long tradition in research of the Emian, 150 years or so. And um, uh, it has a particular mollusk fauna that nowadays we would expect in the Gulf of Biscay, for example, around okay. Bordeaux, 500 to 1,000 kilometers to the south of here. And the big thing with the new warm species from Friesland was that they were located below a glacial till. And we know that the glacial till predates the Emian. So we had a very similar warm fauna as the Emian, but much older. And that was the very, very first time we discovered this kind of warm fauna in the North Sea Basin. Uh, and that was a big surprise in many ways. Yes. And... Well, we get to talk a bit more on that, obviously. But if we go back to 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 the well or the, the borehole um, being drilled, when you plan such a borehole, especially for paleontological research, how how, how do you actually do that? Are you are you looking at a? Is does the location matter or or doesn't it? Oh, very much. Um, and in this case, uh, there was no planning on my behalf. No. But it was part of um, uh, a well that was done for drinking water uh, purposes. Mm. And that formed part of a regional study by Freik and his colleagues uh, on the subsurface, which is mostly middle Pleistocene. And in this case, uh, we've got these tunnel valley uh, systems, um, which are very deep erosive features, which have a very strong fill afterwards. So the subsurface uh, is really very, very nice topography in it. And some of these valley systems, they uh, provide preservation traps. But they also provide kind of um, pathways for marine ingressions and marine incursions. And if you are in such a depression, if you go a kilometer to the one side or the mm. other side, there's nothing of the infill. You're outside the valley system. Um, and the same goes, of course, for the, for the river systems. At the time, the Rhine River uh, um, run through that area. So there you've got other valley systems, which are also in the subsurface. 
And today, yeah. if you are there on the surface, it's flat, flat, flat. But some of these tunnel valleys, they are 100 meters uh, different. Yeah. And they provide these preservation traps. And that is the reason, I think, that we have found this very warm faunas. Otherwise, they are not preserved in the subsurface in many places. Ah, so so you mean that the uh, the, the borehole was planted in, in such an incised yeah, it was part valley. of um, a depression which ran into an um, incised valley. So it was a bit on the side of it. And um, yeah, and the shells came out by surprise. And then um, I got contacted. I work, of course, a lot with my colleagues uh, there. We've been publishing several papers on the middle late Pleistocene in the past few years. And this was really a surprise. Like yeah. this fauna should be immune, should be late Pleistocene. But hey, it is middle Pleistocene. Yeah, because you also write in the paper that actually most boreholes of that depth, this is a, the borehole was about 70 meters depth. I, I uh, no, the borehole I goes think. way further down. I think ah. to around 200 meters. So you get right. well into the Pliocene uh, there. Ah, okay. Also with beautiful faunas, which yeah. uh, inevitably will be published as well. But yes. It takes some time. Okay, but uh, but I understood that it's that it's quite unusual to have fauna from the, the middle Pleistocene, isn't it? That's correct. Um, the middle Pleistocene is very rare uh, when it comes to exposures. Uh, mm. Typically in the North Sea Basin, it is located at depth. Yeah. Um, when you uh, go to the north, it is also very often disturbed very much by the glacial advances of the salient, MIS-6, around 150,000 years. Um, so there's many reasons we and, and it is at depth, so you cannot easily reach it. You need right. lots of boreholes, lots of material. Most of the marine deposits they are uh, offshore, so there is not so many boreholes there, um, and it has not been studied well yeah. as a result. Yeah. So it is very rare to get good material. And 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 can can you describe a bit about? Uh, the sediments found. I know that it's not necessarily your expertise as such, but what 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 is the kind of depositional environment of, of the sediments that you took this, the 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 mollusks from? It is also part of what I do. <laughs> so I Excellent. look very much at at the sedimentary facies. Oh, okay. The facies. Um, uh, these are very important because the shells themselves. Uh, if you walk today on the beach. Mm -hmm. The average age of a shell you will pick up is about 5,000 years or so. And if you walk on the beach in, in the south of the country, at some days you might have, may have almost entirely Pliocene shell farmers on the beach. So this tells you about reworking. Reworking is really a thing with shells. Shells can be reworked over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it is therefore really important to understand, if you look at fossil faunas, what could be in situ and what could not be in situ. Right. And you look at preservation characteristics, but you look also at the sedimentary facies to understand these kind of things. And in this case, um, the shells come actually from two subunits within the Urk formation. Okay. The Urk formation typically is a marine fluvial uh, unit, uh, but it does have some marginal marine uh, intercalations in them that were not well known. Also, the faunas were not well known uh, so far. And what we do see in the lower part, we've got very nice fine-grained deposits, which match very well with some shells, uh, shallow marine environments. And in the upper part, we are in the base of, uh, how do you say, channel system with a lot of gravel and a lot of reworked and mixed faunas from locally 
uh, eroded marine deposits from underlying deposits. So we have more or less two units, uh, subunits with slightly differently preserved faunas and especially in the upper unit mixed faunas. And this mixing is a result of later low stand fluvial uh, processes. So the rhine was there, it eroded into the marine uh, sediments with the fossils and it redeposited and redeposited uh, the shells. Right. Yeah, so so, so the, the thinking is that the, the shells in the upper units are ultimately derived from the, the unit that you found below. Yeah, so are derived from the same unit as the unit below, and the unit below has been uh, kind of uh, left over, has not been eroded, but there has been a lot of erosion within that tunnel valley during the low stand. I see. Yeah, no, because wh when I learned about the Urk formation, <laughs> When I did my uh, my studies in, in the early 2000s, I remember the Uruk was described as a mainly a fluvial system. Yep. So it, that, that f I found that intriguing to read that most of the fossils you found are actually indicating a marine depositional environment. Yes, but for example, the the, the bigger upper part is a fluvial channel with yep. derived marine species. And that is very common in deltaic settings that we have. So we have it also very common. Uh, immune fossils are typically very much concentrated in the Kleftenaie formation in the late Pleistocene, uh, together with mammoth bones uh, and uh, all kinds of terrestrial fossils. Uh, and these kind of combined um, uh, fossils, so you've got uh, terrestrial cold fossils with warm marine fossils in the same layer. So then you know there must have been some mixing going on. And uh, trying to resolve these questions is I, I like very much, and the shells are really nice to do that. Yes, and 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 I also read that yeah you you found so, yeah indications for freshwater yep. mollusks, but also polyhaline. So yeah. quite a quite a range in, in, in terms of deep positional environments. That's true. So for that upper part where things are mixed, we do have kind of um, real full marine um, bits, um, inner shelf type of thing, uh, up to uh, semi-terrestrial snails. Mm -hmm. And typically they are also differently preserved. So it tells you there are different habitats, different preservation. Uh, they are all incompatible which is fine. It means that things are mixed. And the only thing you need to know is like, uh, what are the processes and how much does it um, yes. uh, impede you to understand your founders? And actually it helps you to understand things. Yes. So you already said that because you've got the glacial till sitting on top of that succession, yeah. you could exclude the, the, the possibility that these assemblages you found are of Eemian age. Yes, and that was really uh, nice because Eemian faunas are well known. Yeah. They are already since 1873 or something like that. They have been described from Amersfoort, and we are now currently working on two cores which are taken in the type area. Uh, and they are also very well known by the extensive uh, community of collectors. Uh, we had many fossil faunas uh, found in, in sand uh, terrains in the 1960s and 70s in the Western Netherlands, Amsterdam, Haarlem area, where they sucked up uh, sand from 30 meters depth uh, and um, used it to, to build new, uh, new houses and industry terrains on. Uh, I've, as a kid, I've been also collecting in these sands. And on the beaches, we do have these kind of Eemian fossils. So in Zeeland, where they are eroded Eemian layers uh, by the tidal gullies, 
or today in the Maaslag and the Zandmotor near the, the Hague in Rotterdam, where there's a lot of sand um, derived from the seafloor, just put there to ensure that the beaches um, are maintained. And with that, there's a lot of fossils, including these typical Emian founders. And now we know there is a very similar fauna, which yeah. is much older. And and that is yeah that is just nice that geology keeps on surprising, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, and especially in an area where 150 years of research yes. has been done. So yes. even in well-researched areas, some really nice and unexpected finds are quite yeah. possible. So uh, what also intrigues me um, is well the fact that. Of course, we know that the Pleistocene is characterized by these fluctuations of, of ice ages and, and, and interglacials. But in what, how, how do we need to put this find within the perspective of, of the, the known temperature variations in the Pleistocene? Um, we did know so in the middle Pleistocene that there are some kind of real warm interglacials, um, very similar to the Emian. But um, we did have in the in the Northwest Europe quite some evidence from terrestrial sites, but never from marine sites. And that is new. And the other thing is um, we already can see that in the middle Pleistocene, there was a southern outflow in the North Sea at times, uh, because there is a very nice geochemical signal on the shelf found uh, near Brittany. So on the on, on the northern Biscay Gulf shelf, uh, with the Rhine signature and the typical northern European signature, uh, geochemical signature rivers, which drained during glacials to the south. So ideally, you also have a pathway of marine incursions during high stands since the middle Pleistocene. But we never had the evidence in the North Sea Basin itself, as far as I know. And here we've got these faunas with species which are very warm, uh, some of them are really much warmer than what we would have in the Holocene in the North Sea Basin. And uh, you can have these species uh, going along the, co uh, the coast of Ireland and Scotland and going all the way to the north and enter the North Sea, but then they would need to go, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 kilometers upwards to come in. And it, I think it is a really reasonable assumption that this is a very good indication of a direct connection instead through the English Channel. Yes. Yeah, no, and and so and you were saying that that wasn't, or oh, this is actually yeah a first proof of of that connection existing at the time. Yeah, it is not a proof. It makes the connection well, very likely. It's, um, of course, it's a, it's yeah. <laughs> no, I see what you mean. <laughs> and, and the funny thing, for example, uh, one of these warm species, um, it is a, a very thin shell, beautiful cockle, uh, and. Uh, let's call it a paper cockle, I don't know the exact English name, but that is a species which is warmer than today. It lives very much in coastal areas, in, in uh, shallow bays, estuaries, uh, um, and this one uh, has been kind of reintroduced in the past 20 years in the Netherlands from the south. And this species lived for the last time during the Emian. So we are starting to see today coming in mm. species which have been around, not around for a long time, and which tell us something really about the current warming that we experience today. So the Holocene in general was not so warm as the Emian, but um, it is now starting to get as warm as the Emian, and we do see the fauna responding as yeah. we would expect it. That's an interesting analog. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, I, I think that 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 re I think we yeah, I've got a feeling that we have kind of nicely summarized the the, the findings. Um, but you 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 were you were saying it is quite rare to have these middle Pleistocene faunas found in boreholes. Are there any plans to to do more work on that or? to piggyback on boreholes that are currently being drilled? Because I know that, for instance, in the northern part of ne or in the Netherlands, these shallow geothermal loops yeah. are being drilled all the time to depths maybe a bit or uh, in the range that you are interested in. Would there be any synergies or? Yes, yes, there is. Uh, and currently, uh, well, most of my attention goes to the early Pleistocene and Pliocene. I do a lot of work right now with geothermal boreholes. Whenever they are drilled in some areas which are of interest, uh, I try to go there and negotiate, and uh, it always works. People are really nice and helpful there. To see that I can um, uh, get hold on their uh, sediment samples, but in case the boreholes are really of interest, um, that I also can stand at the boreholes mm. to do the sampling myself so that I can make large samples. Because one of the problems with these shells is sometimes you've got a large shell sample. Very often you've got large shell sample, but most, almost all of the shells are reworked. Reworking is that big problem. And then you need the fine fraction, which is um, well preserved to identify, which is the in situ fauna there that tells you what kind of environments were there. And for that, you need large samples. And for that, I need to be on these boreholes. And both the drinking water companies do a lot of boreholes in the good areas and the good depths and the geothermal boreholes uh, are nice. So there's now a very nice borehole I'm working on very close to Maduro Dam in The Hague uh, that, that covers like two to two and a half million years ago. Beautiful faunas. And that is only because they built a new apartment complex that needed warm water. And I cannot afford these boreholes, but the people are always really nice uh, and I'm allowed to, to work with them and to make sure that we got the samples and we Great. can do the students. That's excellent. It's good to hear that you're on that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and benefit from boreholes, as you say, that are being drilled anyway. Yeah. And more and more also the boreholes and the cores that become available for the prospecting for wind farms. They are doing very, um, they, in the near future, they will provide much, much more information. Yeah. And because we start to know more, we start to be able to ask better questions. And you can see more and more new research projects. So research projects on the late Emian on the North Sea, for example, there's a PhD student in Utrecht uh, working on it, Irene Weyer, and she looks at the, the cold ice, uh, early ice age seas where we had walrus in them. And there is other projects of people working in the middle Pleistocene, like my colleague, Freek Busses, uh, who, yeah. who needs to understand the architecture of the subsurface for this water companies. So there is a renaissance on this uh, middle-late Pleistocene uh, studies, which I really enjoy, and the shells also form a very nice part of it. Yes, and and you also describe in the paper that you rely on a network of amateur paleontologists to help you with identifying yeah. the species. Yes, it's more than that. Uh, okay. So it, it typically, in this case for the paper, uh, we had uh, no real involvement, but typically for, for large-scale studies, uh, there are 
tens of uh, amateur scientists in the Netherlands working with fossil shells, and several of them are really on the level of professional paleontologists. They do publish a lot, uh, and several of them are very much involved in the studies. We do studies together because there's so much work to be done, and for some groups which are very difficult, uh, the expertise sometimes is more with the, uh, uh, with the citizen scientists than it is with me, and that helps us a lot to understand and to improve our knowledge of the foundings. And for example, this uh, for the Pliocene, which is much, much more diverse. Found us there, there's like 400, 500 species. Some of them are very complex groups. I know that uh, if I give the material, hand it over yeah. to someone living in Zeeland, I will get back all the answers and all the very nice analysis I would need. But most of the time, I do also the work myself to make sure that I understand what I do and that I can reproduce it. Of course, of course, but it, it's it's really nice to see that how how much you, yeah, how much it is an, a synergy b between oh yes uh, the different communities, so to say, yes. yeah. Yes, and we have long tradition in the Netherlands, and for example, uh, there's many more examples. But uh, I myself, I worked since twenty years with inventory of the fossil shells of the Dutch beaches. We do have about seven hundred species. Uh, mostly Pleistocene, Pliocene, but also back to the Eocene. Uh, mm. This typically is a, a project together with about 15 citizen scientists uh, who write different chapters, or we write all together, they do the research, we do the research all together. So this is a huge joy, uh, yeah. and it helps me also to get things done, which yes. otherwise would not be capable to do. Oh, I totally see that. <laughs> Um, so, and to conclude, uh, Frank, I, I also read on, on the website, the Naturalis website, that you, you are currently working on a six-year project that involves the reconstruction of Pleistocene environments in the Southern North Sea. I guess that's what you already alluded to at the start, didn't you, that, that big project that brought you back to the North Sea? Yes. So um, I was very fortunate to got granted last year a, a very nice PhD project uh, by NWO, NWO, our National Science Foundation. And it is about using beach fossils. And mostly these are vertebrate fossils, uh, even though I'm not a vertebrate specialist, but I understand the stratigraphic context of these fossils uh, from, from the boreholes that we have in the, in the extraction sites, which are offshore together again with my colleagues and friends from the geological survey, we do that. And on these beaches, some beaches, it is a Valhalla for fossil hunters and also for archaeologists. So there's many beautiful and spectacular finds uh, that, that really help us to understand a lot of the landscape evolution of early hominin uh, evolution here in the North Sea Basin. And what we try to do is to use AI uh, to group the fossils that we have in species and in preservation, and to try to improve the dating techniques on these uh, on these groups, and then to relate them on the independently dated uh, stratigraphic successions, which are offshore under the sea bottom uh, that have been dated with different uh, methods. And this together also relies a lot on citizen scientists, on the collectors very much, uh, as well as on the professional surveys uh, and the and, and the groups and yeah I really enjoy this 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 project because it brings together everything that that we are working on uh, and a lot of joy especially <laughs> that's fascinating um 
and, and and yeah, just as a as a way to round off the discussion, I'm intrigued. But how, how do you use AI to to drive age interpretations, etc.? Yeah, this well, the AI will help us, especially if it works, which is always the big question, to try to make groupings of fossils right. uh, of a similar preservation and a similar species or logical species that as groups can be treated and further studied. Um, and for uh, image recognitions, um, uh, we are very, Naturalis is very active on it, on the mm. recent biodiversity. We do have a really nice app uh, called Ops Identify. And if you use that uh, and you look at a, a flower or a beetle in your back garden, there's a good chance it will come up with a nice identification and a lot of information. And based on that, we try to also expand this into the fossil domain and see if we can make it of use to collect large data sets uh, in a kind of structured way that help us to solve all kinds of questions in the quaternary of the North Sea Basin. That sounds like a very uh, interesting project, Frank. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and um, I, I think this is a great way to round off our, our podcast. Um, Thanks very much for sharing your insights and giving us a, a really good summary of the paper. And I think it again shows that research never stops. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very Thank much you. for your time. Um, this was episode number 12 of our podcast series, The Paper Trail. I hope, I hope you've enjoyed listening and um, until next time. Thanks very much.